1: guardian we love podcasts not only do we make dozens of award winners ourselves but we also write about our favorite podcasts from around the world too every week our column here here that's here as in hearing and here as in where comes out filled with recommendations from you our listeners we sift through them all to find the hidden gems that the podcasting world has to offer these podcasts are often small yet mighty productions, which you probably wouldn't find highlighted on your usual podcatchers. So, if you're looking for your next podcast or have one that you want to share with the world, sign up for our weekly Hear Here newsletter at theguardian.com forward slash podmail and send us an email at podcasts at theguardian.com. The
2: Guardian
1: Hello, this is Brexit Means, the Guardian's regular plunge into the increasingly malodorous waters of Brexit. Not for the first time with Brexit this week, it feels a little like Groundhog Day. Talks with the EU are at a standstill, the Cabinet is at war with itself over which of two different post-Brexit customs arrangements, both of which, of course, the EU has already rejected, Britain should decide to go for. And Theresa May is busy reassuring everyone that she is very clear that they can try Trust her to deliver the Brexit the British people voted for if the government could only agree on a form of Brexit that ministers can back, MPs will vote for and, last but by no means least, the EU will accept. As they have for 18 months, things are not looking easy. With me to work out where we stand or fall at the moment are Dan Roberts, the Guardian's soon-to-be ex-Brexit policy editor, more on that at the end of the show, and Jennifer Rankin, the paper's Brussels correspondent. Welcome to both of you. Dan. Hello. Hi. Good to join you. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Dan, a lot happened last week and at the same time, not a lot happened. Um, Theresa May set up two rival cabinet teams to sort of duke it out over the post Brexit customs partnership and Max Fac customs arrangements that we discussed in detail in the last episode. We had some senior cabinet members dissing each other's favoured options and it also emerged that no Brexit legislation at all and certainly not the EU withdrawal bill fresh from its 14 defeats in the House of Lords has been scheduled for the next fortnight. So all of which kind of suggests doesn't it that it you know it's pretty hard to avoid the conclusion that procrastination is now a real part of the Prime Minister's policy and perhaps on the assumption that by leaving everything till the last minute parliament will be forced to approve whatever's on the table because the alternative is just too awful to contemplate. Is that a fair assessment? Yes I'm going to disagree with you just for the hell of it. I I think that procrastination has been
0: the official government policy for at least a year perhaps longer. Funnily enough I sort of think this week is the moment where They're procrastinating now, not out of choice, but out of necessity. I don't actually think she wants to procrastinate anymore. I think even Downing Street would finally like some decisions on this, but they don't have anywhere to go. They've run out of road. They've run out of room for manoeuvre because whichever way they turn, there is a majority against them in the party and in the commons. And, And that's what's so fascinating about this total deadlock, this complete freezing of activity down to... Just a few conversations in, in 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 number ten. That's all the life that's left spluttering in this once mm. amazing. I mean, <laughs> and Brexit. I remember going over to the first Brussels um, meeting, and, and Jennifer will know much more. We'll be meeting many more of these, but just dozens, and sometimes hundreds of civil servants crossing the Channel triumphantly waving their briefcases speaking big thoughts and, 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 and really getting into the weeds and thinking that they were going to make progress and, and now we're basically down to a few grumpy cabinet members in Downing Street going round and round in circles day after day that's all that's left, that's all that Brexit has boiled down to, it's just gobsmacking. I mean what could possibly break the the deadlock then? Well, we've said this before, Barney, in Barnier's words, the clock is ticking. And I think, I mean, I plan to, to write a piece about this to, later today because I'm, I'm, I think it's important to remind people just as what is at stake if we don't get some forward momentum by the time of the june summit the big risk is that the transition deal collapses the government has pretended to everybody in britain that they achieved a transition deal that we that's we can bank that we know that none of this is going to happen and for at least 21 months after we leave and there's plenty of time for everybody to get used to it that's not true as we've said many times on this show they have a temporary transition deal contingent on us reaching this uh, agreement over over Ireland. And the Irish government made it very clear again yesterday, if we don't have not only a customs deal that's ex- acceptable, but also, crucially, that backstop arrangement that, uh, that, that uh, basically preserves the single market and the customs union north south uh, as a sort of fallback if nothing else agreed if they if they're not in place in legally watertight form then all bets are off there is no first stage agreement and we don't have a transition deal and we are staring over a cliff edge in about six what is it eight months time and i think that the the britain has forgotten that we've all got completely sort of swept up in this maelstrom of politics and we've forgotten the fact that we are about to walk off a cliff edge Mm -hmm. and i think that's the sobering thing that will probably bring the eventually to an end, is Hmm. that they will have to get that sorted. Right.
1: Yeah, Jennifer, I mean, how does it look from Brussels? I mean, the EU must be getting a bit fed up with waiting, isn't it? Michel Barnier said yesterday that a little progress had been made in the talks, but as he also said, some people in the UK had still not accepted the consequences of their decision. I mean, how much time does the British government realistically have to basically keep asking itself the same questions?
2: Well, essentially about six months, to put it bluntly, because uh, the EU wants to get this agreement in place by October if it's then going to be ratified by the European Parliament. And I think the the EU side are quite willing to run the clock down if if that's what needs to happen. Barnier uh, said as well that he would like to see substantial progress in June when we have another EU summit where EU leaders will assess the the state of play or or lack of state of play on, on Brexit. But it's not clear at the moment how far the EU are going to force a showdown in June. Will that be the moment when Theresa May will really have to spell out what she wants to do on Ireland and and customs? Uh, My sense is actually that the EU will be would prefer the UK government to come up with their own idea, their own perhaps plan to stay in the customs union. And, and I think they're hoping that time will help to, to resolve this. So I don't see the EU forcing this, although they are under a lot of pressure from the Irish to really nail down the, the UK government to, um, to get spelling out the detail on the border arrangement. But as far as the EU is concerned, the government has already signed up to the backstop um, twice, once uh, in December and then once again in March when Theresa May wrote a letter to restate her commitment to that. So I think with those uh, agreements in place, the EU is happy to wait for this drama in the UK to play itself out. And then, um, as Michel Barnier keeps saying, the-, the clock is ticking, so it leaves very little time available to do anything else. And worth pointing out as well that negotiations on on the UK's future relationship with the EU have barely started. We've had, I think, just one presentation of the EU side of their guidelines to the British negotiators. So that's all we have to show for more than four months since the, uh, that decision, the green light of sufficient progress in December almost nothing has happened on the future relationship and that is because we're still going round in circles on the divorce and right. the customs right. issue.
1: Dan, you wanted to I, I
0: was on. just going s- to say I think that is the time pressure actually for once it is on the British side because it's not just our uh, inability to make any progress on the forward negotiations but it's also the government's in- inability to get any legislation through the Commons as mm. well. So yes, w- while I can see it would suit Brussels to run the clock down actually the impetus now for once is on the British side to get their skates on because otherwise we just don't have time to get any of the things that that the Prime Minister has promised us she wants done before the autumn
1: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Jennifer mentioned there Brussels uh, eagerly awaiting some kind of sensible proposition on the customs union, Dan. Um, quite, I mean, well, I don't know how interesting it is. You'll tell me the, the launch this week of this sort of cross-party campaign by, by the Tory MP uh, Remainer, Nicky Morgan and the former Lib Dem Deputy Prime Minister Nick Clegg, former Labour Foreign Secretary David Miliband, you know, basically aiming to persuade MPs to follow the Lords and vote for Amendments to the EU withdrawal bill, most important ones obviously focused on staying in precisely the customs union. Now, does it feel to you that this is a sign that the you know the Remain side is maybe beginning to feel more confident that it's it's winning the argument? Well, is the fight back sort of start beginning to gather steam a bit?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's been going on for a while in that we've had former. Prime Ministers, particularly Major and Blair, making these sorts of cases and we've had a much more spirited campaign for a Second referendum led by people like Lord Adonis. I think what's interesting about this, um, this trio this week at the Rice Factory, it felt like a Rice advert with a <laughs> press conference yeah. attached to it. But anyway, yeah. um, beneath the tilde sacks of rice, there were th- two interesting new things, I thought. One, we saw a different generation of politicians up on the stage. David Miliband is clearly someone not lacking in ambition and clearly someone who thinks this is the moment to make a physical reappearance on the British stage, yes. yeah. which is something, that, which is, a, he, he is still seen by some as the sort of prince over the wall and someone who could really shake things up. I'm sceptical. But the fact that he thinks this is the moment is telling. The other thing I thought was telling was that they weren't so much focusing on uh, second referendum. They weren't that much on the customs union. The, really, the new battleground is EEA membership yeah. and the single market. Because I think that people have finally realised that the customs union is indistinguishable from the single market, really. If you want frictionless trade, you've got to have both. Actually, EEA membership doesn't give you customs union. It just gives you single market. But it, there, there's some pretty sophisticated customs arrangements with the EEA members and the crucial battle is is really over this very soft brexit where we stay within the single market and i think the impetus to that the trigger for that was that lords i think defeat number 14 on the yes. withdrawal bill um where there was a really big labor rebellion um against the the whips who was who who were, and as we know, the Labour leadership very mm. worried about single market membership. Uh, the fact that that got through the Lords I and mean, the fact that we know that Tory moderates like Nicky Morgan and even many Brexiteers quite secretly favour this as the least worst option. Mm. I think that's an interesting new battlefront that's being opened up.
1: OK, um, Jennifer, that on that question of the uh, sort of EFTA-EEA model, which, as Dan says, Uh, You know, really does seem to be back on the table, um, at least in theory and in the sense that a lot of people are now talking about it. Norway's Prime Minister Ernest Solberg appeared to sort of row back on her country's previous position last week. She told the FT that Oslo would welcome the UK joining the EEA. I mean, is this a a feasible or even perhaps even a sort of a favoured option in Brussels and the other capitals?
2: a favored option for Brussels but it's only a feasible option if if we remember a few months ago when Michel Barnier met EU leaders in December, and he presented them with this now famous slide, his sort of steps of doom slide, if you like, where we start off at the very top of the stairs with the EU, where there's sort of the you know maximum benefits, and then you go down step by step, ending up where um, with Canada, which is where the the UK's red lines means it ends up with a very sort of limited free trade deal with the with the EU. But then, if we look on that um, on that second step, then we find uh, that is, that is the Norway EEA option. But then the, re- the reminder is there as well that um, that would mean the UK changing its mind on um, on the role of the, the European Court, because although the um, the EEA have the um, well they have the EFTA Court, but that largely follows ECJ jurisdiction. That would also mean the UK changing its mind on free movement of people. Uh, as well as making uh, substantial contributions to the EU budget, as Norway uh, does, so it, will be, it would require a major change in um, in the government's thinking on, on Brexit. But I think for for Brussels, it's definitely a, definitely an option, and I'm sure there'll be plenty of capitals that would welcome it when you think of countries such as the, the Netherlands Belgium Germany I think these countries would be very happy for the the UK in fact the majority of countries would be very happy for the UK to stay in the single market and for trade to continue largely unimpeded
1: Absolutely yeah and I mean, Dan I mean I mean even Dan Hannan who you know you might I don't know what 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 depending on what you think of him is sort of generally considered one of the uh, for better or worse one of the architects of leave uh, I mean, he said, you know, an efta EEA endpoint looks sensible. Now, I mean, as Jennifer basically just, just said, a, a lot of people on this side of the channel too would probably say that the Norway option was by some margin the best choice economically, but probably not possible politically. Is that your view? I mean, would there be a parliamentary majority for it, do you think? And what would be, the obviously, the consequences for the government as regards the sort of the Jacob Rees Moggs and the Brexit hardliners of this world? Yeah, I struggle to see how this plays
0: out. I think that two. Different camps are arguing for this for two very different reasons. I think there is a group, um, people like Dan Hannan and some of the people in the Leave campaign, who've always argued actually that this is not a bad um, stepping stone for Britain. They started off arguing this when when Brexit itself seemed so impossible to imagine that they thought that that campaign. This would be like kind of Norway a halfway house. Was was yeah. a good start. And if you remember, Dan Hannan famously gave an interview where he th- he said, "Well, uh, you know, Brexit needn't mean us leaving the single yeah. market, of mm. course." And so this is not um, completely out of character for them. I think one of the reasons it's reemerged on that side of the debate is that they really fearful that Brexit might not happen at all. So they're back to this original thinking mm. that this might be the best they can get. I think paradoxically the, the the opposite is going on with some of the Remainers who are punting this as a sort of stepping stone towards a second referendum, because I think they see the internal logic as just breaking down so quickly. Once you start down this path, once you say that the economic arguments are so compelling, we must stay within the single market, then you're left with the political. Well, what the hell
1: are we are doing? We doing leaving? For yeah, because yeah.
0: everything is downside. Then the only benefit there is no upside at that point. All we lose is, is influence, and you can argue over the extent to which Norway and other countries are able to influence regulation. Jennifer may know better. My sense is it's pretty limited, but never mind how much we have there's no doubt it's less than being a a full member of the of the union so the remainers i think see this as the thin end of the wedge they feel if they can get the country to acknowledge that we have to be in the single market for economic reasons then they can have the political argument wherever they say well what on earth are we doing they are are, they are completely contradictory motives arriving at the same solution which is eea membership and uh, and that's where i don't see how that then plays out at, at some point one or other something's was, <laughs> gonna have to give something's i think the choice to, the, re- yeah. the the thing is this government cannot do that the only thing we get there i think is with a new leader uh, at least of the of the party right. if not a new government yeah okay
1: okay Je- i mean jennifer uh, you know as uh, as dan mentioned there, the the, the ea or norway or ea after doesn't resolve Fully, the question of the Irish border does it because it, because it doesn't include customs union membership. So does that mean we need to look at the customs this customs partnership idea again? I mean, I, I see that the Irish government said this weekend, you know, something that something like the Customers Partnership might maybe be able to make to work. And and EU officials are apparently sort of at least asking the the British government questions about it, which is a sign of, you know, positive engagement with an idea, if nothing else. I mean, is that still completely magical thinking as far as the EU27 are concerned? Or might there be something that the sort of the kernel of something there that could be worked on?
2: Yes, well, there are some interesting straws in the wind, aren't aren't there? And and you mentioned the the Irish um, comments recently, and and the Prime Minister, Leo Varadkar, he said that um, the the view of the EU is that the May proposal for a customs partnership isn't workable in its current form, but it is something that perhaps could work, we could work out. And talking to Irish officials, though, about this, they stress very much, don't get carried away with this, that... um, the British tend to read too much into into what the Irish government says on, on this issue. But nonetheless, I think there's a sign, I get signs from other EU officials that people are trying to be, not be so dismissive about these ideas it was quite striking that after the last round of Brexit negotiations about 10 days ago several eu officials were talking about these irish customs proposals and they were saying well we're still very skeptical about them but they haven't actually been taken off the table so Although I don't really think that the substance has changed. I think there's a slight change in tone, and, and maybe a, that the, the EU is trying not to push the government too hard into a corner they, because the initial reaction from the EU was very strong. I mean, they, they said last August that the customs partnership was magical thinking, and, and we've heard very sort of similar lines all through the, the, the months while the, these proposals have been debated um, in the UK. So I think maybe what's happening is that the EU might be looking to help Theresa May find a graceful exit. And and I wonder, this is just my own theory, whether that customs partnership could somehow be transformed into a a customs union. And maybe that's what the EU is is looking for or hoping might emerge from from these very long discussions in the cabinet. So I think that's why they're, they're being less dismissive than they were about these proposals. But I wouldn't read that as meaning that they're ready to, to sign up to them and and certainly that the, the, they still see the backstop as something central to this, that if there's no agreement that we should all end up falling back on that backstop, which would put the border effectively in the Irish Sea. So I think it's easy to read too much into the changes, but there is definitely a change of, of tone there.
1: Right, and they're at least holding the door open. okay. well, we're nearly there for this week. Just one final point, Dan. This is your last Brexit means. You're off to pastures new. Um, I'd like to say personally that we'll really miss your unfailing ability to explain the seemingly unexplainable patiently, clearly and even with a little bit of humour. So just a few final thoughts from you. What have you learned about, uh, I mean... Britain is maybe a bit much to ask, you were a few you were, you were a few years in the States before coming back to Britain to this job. What have you learned about Britain? What have you learned about Brexit as policy editor? And would you care to hazard a guess about where this whole thing might end up? Gosh, it's been quite a humbling exercise actually covering Brexit
0: um, the last 18 months. I, I have to admit, I know less than I thought I did at the beginning of the process. <laughs> it's a combination of the government going round and round in circles and deliberately obfuscating and, and procrastinating. And also a sense in which I think one of the big problems with Brexit is how complicated the world has become, particularly the intersection of trade and government. I, I covered—I was a business journalist for about 15 years, and then, as you say, I was in the US, and I covered trade talks, EU-US trade talks, uh, T tip and and so forth and I, I I've only recently begun to understand just how interconnected the modern world is just how companies how how basically politics might still be national um, or some of it at least but al- almost all other aspects of our day-to-day lives um, whether they're economic cultural social mm. are very much increasingly borderless we live in a borderless world and I think one of the big problems with brexit one of the big confusions why everybody is st- really struggling to get their heads around it is. It, it forces us to think about how the world works in ways that we don't like to think about. We don't think, where does the car come from? Where does the clutch come from? Hungary? And if the clutch comes from Hungary, how does it get over the border yeah. from Germany? And we, you just pull the, you just just, just yeah. you know put the foot down and hope that the clutch works. And I think it's that sense in which, for me, it's been a voyage of discovery but of discovering just how ignorant I am about the modern world. And uh, without wanting to sound big-headed about it, if after 15 years in business journalism and then 10 years in political journalism, working abroad on Australia, and then 18 months of doing nothing but trying to learn about Brexit, if even at the end of that process, I still don't understand it. Mm. I, it's no wonder a lot of other people are scratching their heads as well. It, 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 it is... And I think that's where the cabinet is at this week. I think they are finally beginning to understand just how intractable some of these problems
1: yeah. are. Yeah, Jennifer, does that sound about right from where you are?
2: I, I think that the complexity issue is a really interesting one because it does seem that it seems to me sometimes having having covered the um, EU for a long time that that people when people never wanted to. We sort of switched off from the EU because it was complicated and, and difficult and technical, and and went on for you know decisions took months and months to make. And I think that's rather similar to Brexit. And and sometimes I worry that the the, the public debate is almost switching off from the details of, of Brexit because it is getting very technical and um, and is going to be this way for for years and years. So it it does seem that the the true debate about Brexit might uh, might get get lost in uh, in all the detail. Um, but I'll be, be sorry that we'll be uh, stopping the, well, not stopping the podcast, but stopping
1: the the weekly conversations we've we've done. Oh, and, uh... guys,
2: stop it! Come <laughs> on, this is going to get emotional. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thank you, Jennifer.
1: Okay, well, yes, before it does get too emotional, um, we will call it a day there for this week. Uh, But in fact, um, it's not the end of the sorrow because this is also goodbye, not just to Dan, but to Rowan Slaney, who has produced Brexit Means pretty much since it launched 18 months or so ago. Rowan, you've been a complete star throughout. Thank you very much. Good luck with the new gig. Dan, good luck with your new gig. Uh, my thanks to everybody then for joining me again today. Dan for his last podcast, Ron for hers, Jennifer from Brussels. Unless, I mean, maybe we'll be able to persuade you back occasionally, Dan, who knows? Next week. All <laughs> will know. Next week it'll all become clear. Um, so thanks to everybody. Um, please do subscribe and review on all your favourite podcatchers. Join the discussion on Twitter. You just need to search for Guardian Podcasts. If you want to get in touch, it's brexitpodcast at theguardian.com. Till next week then, I'm John Henley, the producer, again for the last time, was Rowan Slaney. This was Brexit means, and thank you very much for listening.
2: For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com/podcasts.
1: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts?